This episode of The Band of History deals with drug and alcohol abuse as well as suicide. Listener discretion be advised. On the surface, it was all so beautiful, and underneath, everything was so rotten. Libby Titus. Before accurately looking at Richard Manuel's position after the last waltz, it's important to track his dealings in time before the event. The band had moved bases in 1974 from the east coast in the colony of Woodstock to the west coast summery shores of Malibu. A move predicated not entirely on the group's best interests, but rather pointed to the direction of Robbie Robertson and where he wanted to tread. After halting the band's attempt to sign to Albert Grossman's Bearsville Records and growing frustration with touring and marketing issues, Robertson, lured by Hollywood's warm touch, moved, and the band had no natural choice but to follow. Manuel rented himself and his family several homes after moving west and found himself renting a house from Goldie Hawn at Point Doom, an area on the coast of Malibu. Manuel willingly went along. Who could say no to the endless sun, beaches, and let's face it, a community of heavy drug use, partying, and general debauchery? Manuel, who was already quite susceptible to drug use, drinking, and hanger-on types, was consumed immediately by the Hollywood rock star life. He drank up to eight bottles of Grand Marnier and orange-flavored liqueur daily, among copious amounts of cocaine and heroin. And it wasn't long before Manuel's wife, Jane Christensen, was regularly calling emergency services because Richard would often attempt suicide, including one attempt with a BB gun. Ronnie Leon, a friend from Woodstock, said he tried to kill himself several times there. He almost burnt down the house after trying to set himself on fire. Then he shot himself in the head with a BB gun. I don't know how he went so crazy. The resulting stress Manuel's behavior was having on Jane and their six-year-old daughter Paula led them to leave Malibu and head east. Manuel let his depression and dependencies creep up on him, but the train kept rolling, and 1974 found the band with their old steady Bob Dylan for a quick stint in the studio to record Dylan's album Planet Waves and a blockbuster tour that saw record sales and the group being hailed as rock stars in all its stupendous flavor and excess. It wouldn't be long before the next woman would take interest in the bearded mystery of Richard Emanuel. Sally Mann, a groupie who had spent the early years of her working life traveling and tending to Frank Zappa, The Grateful Dead, Grace Slick, 10 years after, and Stephen Stills, found herself attending the Oakland Coliseum tour date on the Dylan Band tour with her friend Bob Weir of Grateful Dead fame, where she became quickly transfixed with Richard. She described her first time seeing him as, quote, I was inexplicitly transfixed by a disheveled wraith of a man, sitting with one leg cross over the other at the knee, folded over onto himself with a goofy grin on his black-bearded face, caressing an amber bottle of Grand Marnier with more fervor than Bogey ever felt for Bacall. Man, a stunning fixture of the 70s, had no problem getting the eyes of Richard Manuel, consummating the relationship that evening in his lavish Oakland hotel. 
She noted from her first interaction, he was consistently in a daze of alcohol, cocaine, and heroin with a little Vicks nasal spray. She remembers, quote, Richard was dependent on Vicks nasal spray to breathe, and he was unable to breathe because he was dependent on Vicks nasal spray. The ever-fragile Manuel professed his love for man, asking her to move in with him immediately. He also asked her to go out on a date on the upcoming Valentine's Day, which was also on the same day as the band's last show of the tour at the Forum in Los Angeles. The man who was living in San Francisco at the time was attended to by someone within the band, Dylan Camp. Flights were booked from San Francisco to Los Angeles. She was provided a private driver and checked into the Beverly Hills Wilshire, where she'd be staying. She was also given a large floral bouquet, reserved for wives and girlfriends of the band. And after that evening, Mann lived with Manuel in his $3,000 a month rental on Broad Beach Road in Malibu. Everyone didn't warmly receive her addition to Manuel's life. However, Rick Danko and Levon Helm's partner Libby Titus were warm and welcoming from the get. On their hairdresser's suggestion, they purchased a 1964 Cadillac for $2,000 that was in pristine condition. Mann found that Richard didn't have a license and mustered him to the local DMV to get his California license. Little did she know that Manuel's lack of license was purposely controlled by the army of lawyers and managers that the band now had. Richard was a danger to himself and others when behind the steering wheel. Practically knowing nothing of the man, though, she observed Richard's penance for all-day drinking and sleeping. And it wasn't long before a young officer caught a drunk Manuel cruising at an alarmingly high speed in broad daylight and conveniently escorted him home without a fine or jail time. That was Malibu in the 70s. Having been with Richard briefly, his birthday on April 3rd was approaching. Mann, who had seen Jack Cassidy, the Jefferson Airplane bassist, sporting a Pulsar time computer, the first ever digital watch with a light-sensitive LED screen, she bought the $2,100 watch from the boutique in Malibu and gifted it to Manuel, who loved the gift and donned it for several years. Sally also planned a party for Richard, including guests Bob and Sarah Dillon, Libby Titus, and promoter Bill Graham, who arrived via helicopter. Richard, now a little bit more comfortable in his relationship, told Mann that his former wife Jane had escaped back to New York and relaying that while they still lived east, Manuel had come home one day to her being worked over by a local sect of Jehovah Witness followers, changing her forever, another fracture in their tenuous relationship. Manuel also sheepishly told Mann that while Jane had left, he had found out that she was again pregnant with her second child, a quote, incident that had happened when he was back in Woodstock visiting his daughter Paula. Now, Sally was also tasked with helping Richard function enough to get him into the studio. Having wrapped up a tour with Bob Dylan, the band was eager to get back in and record an album that would later become Northern Lights' Southern Cross. As Mann recalls, quote, The band began rehearsing and recording again in preparation to go out on the road, and seemed to expect that Richard, as one of the pivotal members and vocalists, would attend. While that viewpoint seemed entirely reasonable, the preliminary task of extracting him from his terry cloth bathrobe and dressing him for public consumption or even private consumption at a closed session recording studio was a challenge of epic proportions. Richard's idea of an excellent afternoon and strenuous physical workout was one spent planted amongst the Potiswas sofa cushions watching Match Game with Gene Rayburn. In about to get Richard inspired, Robbie and producer and friend Jonathan Taplin, along with the band's management, tried to get Richard out of his heroin-induced couch coma to the studio to work with someone else, to inspire him, perhaps. 
this person was one of the only people in the music industry with a worse habit off than Manuel, the captivating singer Joe Cocker. Cocker, who had just suffered a massive embarrassment when he was booked by his producer and former bandmate Jim Price to play the Roxy in Los Angeles, attended by a star-studded guest list including Lou Elder and David Geffen, among others, having induced a large amount of cocaine and whiskey, he wrestled through the first two songs before throwing up all over the stage to everyone's disgust. Both Manuel and Cocker were in need of a pick-me-up. It was dreamt up of getting the two of them, the most soulful voices in music, together to sing in a studio. Mann was tasked with bringing Manuel to the Vine Street studio area, something which, she said, Manuel was very much excited to take part in, but struggled to get dressed in the throes of his depression. But armed with Vic's nasal spray and a case of Grand Marnier, Mann got Manuel to the studio. Surprisingly, Bob Dylan was also present that day to marvel at the possibility of Manuel and Cocker sharing a duet. Both parties were incredibly inebriated upon arrival, Manuel sitting down at the famed Nat King Cole baby grand, bobbing and weaving until he fell backward and smashed his head on a standing ashtray, essentially ending the sessions. A great musical what-if lives large. More or less, this was Richard's life during the period, drinking to excess, drug comas, and little to no productivity. His depression and anxieties took hold, and with little to zero real support, he was enthralled by his disease. Sure, he had some folks that cared, but it didn't do much to change his behavior. As Mann mused in her memoirs, when she was in the studio, sitting in the booth with Dylan, he asked her, are you his wife now? Before she noted, no, I am his nurse. The only moments of musical comfort came from general visits like Libby Titus spending time with him in the Malibu colony, accompanying Manuel as he played harpsichord in their rendition of Miss Otis Regrets, and getting him into the studio was rather painful to finish Northern Lights Southern Cross. As Mann noted, many of Richard's social interactions during the period were drug-focused. Whether it was Spencer Dryden, the drummer for Jefferson Airplane, and, la and later New Riders of the Purple Sage helping Richard score some heroin, or an old Woodstock friend, Bobby Charles, coming over for hangouts. He also started a fast friendship with Eric Clapton, who used Shangri-La to record his 1976 album, No Reason to Cry. Clapton, who was equally in the throes of his addiction, became a kindred soul for Manuel, an influence that didn't help his fragile state. Manuel told writer Timothy White in 1989 about his friendship with Manuel, quote, I was madly in love with Richard, because we were both going through a lot of the same difficulties, screwing around with drugs and drink, getting pretty crazy down deep. He was finding it difficult to cope with his talent. I just identified so strongly with him. For me, he was the one that I thought was the light of the band. There was something of a holy madman about Richard. He was raw. When he sang in that falsetto, the hair on my neck would stand up on end. Not many people can do that. Sally Mann and Richard Manuel's romantic paradise came crashing down when Jane, in tow with Paula and their newest child, a baby boy named Joshua, arrived back in California. Now, given the circumstances of Jane's departure, the arrival of a newborn child complicated things. No doubt her conflict morally with what Richard was occupying himself with disturbed her, but she now had two small children and an ex-husband who was making thousands of dollars a week. She needed support. Richard had Jane in another $4,000 a month rental in the Malibu colony. Still, it slowly became apparent that Richard's two lives were coming into conflict. 
like Jane's reprimandment for allowing Paula to decorate a Christmas tree, something against her Jehovah Witness practices. And Mann noted jokingly, quote, So you can see Jane Manuel and I were not really destined to become sister wives. Richard started to drift more over to the side of his family and his small children. Mann remembers, quote, After a few weeks of rattling around Broad Beach Road in a well-dressed state of existential inertia, there came a random day when I could no longer stand the full-tilt nebulousness of it all. And I realized, being a tad slow on the uptake, everything was not. And on that summery day at some point in 1975, the somewhat sick and twisted melodrama ended. Sally packed her things and moved back again to San Francisco to seek what she called, quote, refuge, rehab, and closet space. Nineteen seventy five happened like a blur, and nineteen seventy six came fast approaching and was the final straw for the Manuel's family life. The drinking, drugging, and depression didn't stop, and after one too many nights of pain, Richard and Jane finally called it quits. Officially Jane divorced Richard, no time a doubt of desperation for an ailing Richard Manuel and his family. He had also gotten himself into another car accident, a period that took recovery. Still, he was due to return with the band and tour their album Northern Light Southern Cross, already in a severely delicate state, in which the band did their best to support him through. As Robbie remembers, Richard was struggling with his drinking. Quote, he had taken up with an old girlfriend of Levon's, Kathy Smith, from Toronto. Kathy tried helping Richard keep it together, but she had her own battle with drugs. So this was a relationship with definite pitfalls. The tour began at the Frost Amphitheater at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, with the Flying Burrito Brothers as support, before heading down the coast and bouncing for a show in Kentucky and then to the state of Texas. The band was stiff to begin tour, their first in two years, but reviews were favorable, with Pete Opel stating in his review for the Dallas Morning Star, the show had all the ingredients of being one of the all-time concerts. With only a few shows under their belt, they were dealt a blow, literally, the band was due to play a festival at the Steiner Ranch near Austin, Texas. Roads to the festival were blocked, and the only way in was via boat. Robbie remembers, quote, They had speedboats ripping up and down the river, carrying performers to and fro. Boat bringing us in was flying over the water when Richard decided he wanted to move up to the front. But as he stood up, we hit a wave, and the boat pounded down hard and threw Richard backwards, snapping his neck badly. This unfortunate event put a risk to the tour and Manuel's life. His injury was severe and required extreme measures. A doctor that the band had brought in told the group that Richard had fractured his neck. He could barely move without severe pain. Now, similar to Robertson's stage fright incident in 1969, the band brought in Tibetan monks to assist in making Emmanuel feel better, at the suggestion of one of their crew members. The monks, led by Norby Chen, was headquartered in nearby Arlington, Texas, not far from them, and within a few hours they arrived. Robbie remembers, quote, I was expecting men in robes with shaved heads, but these guys looked more like FBI agents, dressed in dark suits. They laid Richard down flat and made everyone leave the room. From the outside of the hotel suite door, an hour later, Norbu came to the group and told them that Richard would be able to finish the tour. They found Richard rubbing his neck, and he said he was fine. The monks had used tonal vibrations to fix him. With a few New York dates due and Northeast dates canceled, the band was back on the road. Manuel was using a neck brace for a few shows, but it was back to business, and the group carried on. 
The Truer, while having its fair share of behind-the-scenes drama, continued to get great reviews with newspaper headlines like, The Band Scores a Hit, The Band, Big Pink Still Big, and The Band's Three Encore Return to New York. And while things seemed fine, Robbie remembers, quote, Our rock and roll lifestyle was passing the point of no return, and it would only be a short few months before the band played their legendary last waltz. One minute, the band was out promoting their latest effort, and the next, it was ending. The last waltz came and went in November of 76. Levon and Rick had quickly transitioned into their solo efforts, and Robbie was focused on the film and soundtrack portion of The Last Waltz. Garth was in sessions with other musicians. Richard found himself a little aimless. Robertson is quoted as saying to Barney Hoskins, I was really concerned about Richard. We should take a period of time and really concentrate on the writing and helping Richard get his health organized. Well, that help didn't necessarily come. The supposed entire reason Robertson wanted to stop touring and do The Last Waltz was that he was worried about Richard and concerned about his health. Now Richard was left to meander. It's entirely possible that Richard didn't accept that help. That much seemed pretty clear. Someone addicted needs to make the change themselves. And in the immediate aftermath of The Last Waltz, Manuel instead entered into a relationship with the 21-year-old Artie Levac. Levac came from the Forest Hill area of Toronto, born to a Jewish family. She wanted to meet Richard for years. At the age of 16, she heard him sing Lonesome Susie. She later noted, quote, he had a voice like a hug. The pair initially met in 1974, and not two years later, they began to live together as they took over the Who drummer's Keith Moon's house in Malibu in 1977. All of this seemed familiar. New rental homes, new girlfriends, and more drugs. Finally, figuring out he needed to make a severe change to his life, after meandering after the last waltz, Manuel wanted to get help. He wanted to be more productive and make his relationship work with Arlie. He moved in with Garth Hudson to his ranch outside of Malibu, and he entered into a drug and rehabilitation program that he successfully completed in August 1978. Richard's depressive and manic state, as well as the abuse of his body, were decades in the making at that point. It was remembered that when they moved Manuel out of his space at the Shangri-La studio, they found 2,000 empty bottles of Grand Marnier, and that he was so saturated with alcohol that even his skin seemed to sag on his bones. Manuel would need all the willpower and support from his friends and family to finally turn the page and start a new chapter of life. Thank you for listening to the Band of History. Um, tough episode to get through, um, definitely. You know, this period that Richard later coined as the beige period kind of details his life from the mid to late 70s, especially after he moved to uh, California. And what was interesting is, you know, you, you hear about the drug use, you hear about the drinking, you hear about the Grand Marnier, but really kind of the more you dig in and, and the more you kind of glean from people that lived around him during this period, you come to realize that, you know, Richard was really sick. Um, you know, I think a lot of people trivialize or at least look at addiction on a surface level. They're like, why couldn't Richard get it together? You know, 
no wonder Robbie ended the ban. Richard, it's Richard's fault. And, you know, I think some things point towards it being Richard's fault, or at least in the perspective of some people in the band, particularly Robbie. But, you know, when you really take a step back and look at it with some empathy, this is somebody who dealt with depression, anxiety, um, probably had several diagnoses that kind of went untold during that period and, you know, really numbed his feelings with drugs and alcohol. And you, you see the sorts of people that surrounded themselves um, to Manuel, people that wanted his money and his status, um, people that were also drug addicts themselves and, you know, in a large majority of those people were also responsible for trying to take care of Manuel. <laughs> they're all drug addicts. They're all doing cocaine. They're all drinking to excess. Um, but they could kind of bring it together at the right points to be productive. You know, that was the band. That was the rest of the group. They were all drug addicts. They were all drinking heavily. They were all living the rock star life, but they could pull it together when it came time to tour or to get in the studio. Richard instead, you know, sunk into his couch because of his depression. It was also, you know, a very uh, interesting episode to do. Um, I hope I painted a picture um, with some empathy of the time. I think it's a time that people don't really know a lot about uh, and some of the characters that were around him at this at this period and kind of his general life. Uh, also trying to be delicate too, you know, his kids still very much alive. Um, they probably don't listen to the podcast, but, you know, you, it's somebody's personal life, so you got to be you got to be thinking about that as well. So I, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the show. If you want to follow along online, uh, we're, we're everywhere. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Band Podcast. You can find us on TikTok at The Band Podcast. Um, and if you want to consider supporting the show, uh, get early access to episodes, bonus content, both in written and audio form, uh, as well as some other things, uh, consider becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash The Band History different tiers you can contribute or if you want to give a one-time donation uh, there's a link on my website at thebandpodcast.com like every time i want to thank everybody who listens to the show it's kind of crazy how many people listen um, especially when i only release these like once a month um, it's actually quite insane and all the people that i interact with online um, that love the show love what i'm doing here with it and i want to thank my editor as always mike who takes my ramblings and makes me sound better than I actually am and edits out things like my cat meowing in the background. So thanks everybody for listening to the band of history and we'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.